Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Amen. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be here today. I'm deeply honored to be here today. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak to you. You know, your pastor has gone out of his way to be my friend and to show me kindness and they have been so hospitable to us as we've been here and I you know I'm really thankful for his intentional demonstration of Christ I think that is so important you know Paul said to the Corinthians be imitators of me as I am of Christ follow me as I follow Christ and we need people in our lives to show us by example to live by example um, and lead us through example and your pastor has certainly been that to me and I want to give him honor today. And I do consider it a privilege every time I have the opportunity to speak, even in my home church, even doing a Sunday morning Sunday school that happens every week. I consider it a privilege because I love the Word of God. And I'm I ministered to every time I get to come up here and minister the, the Word of God. I'm, I'm glad my wife was able to join me and my kids, my wife Tiffany. I asked her, you know, this is my first time ministering away from my, uh, my hometown. And I asked her, I'm like, you want me to do that thing that evangelists do where they have you come up and greet the congregation and maybe play the piano, sing a song? And she declined my gracious invitation, but she greets you today, and we're, we're all thankful to be here. Um, while you're standing, I want to read my text, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. In the New King James Version, it says, Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And this is Saul, who would later be called Paul. Verse 2 says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So with God's help today, I want to preach to you on this topic, the sending church. The sending church. Would you help me pray today? God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for bringing us here together. God, you are the God of, of this word. You are the God of the seed and the soil. I pray right now that you would anoint your word and anoint me. And I pray that you would help me to present this word the way that you see it. I pray that you remove every obstacle to receiving the word of God today. In Jesus' name. You may be seated. I love this depiction of the early church. And this is just a small snapshot in a life of a growing church. And, I, you know, I try to read when we do, you, you might do this too. At the beginning of the year, there's, you know, read the Bible in a year program. I try my best 
I really do, to read through the Bible in a year. But many times I've, I've read through the Bible, I've overlooked this, just this verse. Because it simply just serves as a point of transition. But it's an important transition. It's a transition from the local Jewish church to the global church that Jesus Christ had intended it. Uh, you know, God had to give Peter a vision in order for him to go and preach the Gentiles. And if you really look at it, you know, the, the, the local church, the church in Jerusalem, we draw a lot of examples out of it uh, about how the church should be modeled. But it was kind of a racist church in a way. Very secluded, very to themselves. They didn't want to associate with other people who weren't a part of their culture. Um, they didn't understand that the gospel was truly for everyone. And it was only after the Jerusalem church began to be persecuted and scattered that they took the gospel outside of their country. And it was only after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus that the church could slowly become that global church that God had intended. And I want you to notice that this church sent out two people, Paul and Barnabas, whom you know we know in retrospect that they were likely the most capable people to be the pastors of that church, to be the leaders of that church. And that's who was sent. This church sent their best. And notice while, you know, in our day, a church is often identified by a pastor. You know, that's, what, that's how we do it. And I'm not saying that's not a bad thing. But this church didn't have that kind of designation. It had a lot of talented individuals in that church, obviously. But it wasn't a church about individuals. And I, I want to I preach to you because I think we must become this church. We must become the sending church. The church that is able to send our best to send those that the Holy Spirit says separate unto me. And I'm thankful for the apostolic. I'm thankful that this is an apostolic church, Hatchbend Apostolic Church. I'm so thankful for a church that's made its foundation, the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. But the apostolic church, I want to tell you, the apostolic church is a sending church. And I, I just found this out recently. I didn't know this. Um, you know, you're raised in the church, you hear these words like apostle and apostolic, and you don't necessarily know what they mean. I mean, you kind of get this sense of what they mean by how people use them. But I just found out that the word apostle just means someone who is sent. That's what the word apostle means. And there are no capital A apostles in the Bible. That, that happened much later, you know, in the history of the church that we, we started having capital A apostles. Um, because, you know, in, you know, Apostles were common during that time. That wasn't a, that wasn't a religious thing to be an apostle. It wasn't a religious thing. Um, but I found out that, you know, a, apostle, that was just a messenger. That means someone who was sent to carry a message. That's all an apostle was. And oftentimes, a, apostle would be sent on behalf of a household or on behalf of a government. And if you were sent on behalf of a government, you know, you, you went with an armed guard. Because travel was dangerous in those days. It wasn't a simple thing just to travel you know, 30 miles down the road, you had to have some protection. But household, you know, if you, were a, if you were the head of a household, you didn't have an armed guard to send with your apostle. So oftentimes, who would be the apostle would be a slave, a household slave. Um, and you don't want to send your good slave. You don't want to send the person who knows how to manage things, who knows how to manage the affairs. No, you want to send someone who is, well, disposable. I know that sounds <laughs> terrible. But, you know, you don't want to lose... You don't want to lose your best slave. So oftentimes, the person who was sent, the apostle, would be the lowest slave in the house. And you know, another interesting thing, the lowest slave in the house was often that same person who would be responsible for washing feet of the people who would enter the house. 
But I, I read this statistic that in that time, one-third of the Roman world were slaves. And one-third were slave owners, and the other third were former slaves. They had been freed. Um, so slavery was a large part of that time and place. Uh, in Romans 1 and 1, the writer introduces himself as Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, unto, separated, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And that word servant there, it's kind of a euphemism. Uh, the, the English translators kind of made that a little nicer for us. And the, the Greek word is doulos, which simply means slave. He's saying, I am a slave for the gospel of Christ. I am that person. I am that person who is sent. He's not saying, I am a capital A apostle. I am not someone with a title. That was not a, that was not a title to, to lift himself up. When he says, I am called to be an apostle, that was a title to press himself down. He's saying, I am the lowest slave. I am the one who is sent to carry this message. Amen. So to be an apostle is to be sent in the world to carry the message. In Luke 10, Jesus sent out his 70 disciples. And he said this. He said, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus is describing a problem. This, this is a problem that's going to be a perennial problem in the kingdom of God, and that is labor shortage. If everyone in this church today accepted your calling and began to do the work of God, there will still be more work than workers. You know, the wife of Elisha's, one of Elisha's, an Old Testament prophet, the wife of uh, one of his disciples came and said, you know, your servant is dead, and I'm in a, he left me a great deal of debt. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you have in the house? And she said, I only have this cruise of oil. And he says, we can... We can work with that. God is going to use what you have on hand. And so he said this. He said, go gather vessels. Don't gather just a few. Gather not just a few, as many as you can. And, she, and he said, now fill the, go into your house, close the door, and fill those vessels with that oil. And that oil filled every one of those vessels. And she turned to her son and said, quick, hand me another vessel. And he said, there's not another one. And the oil ceased. God is, God is infinite. There is no limit to what God can do. He is going to keep pouring into people until there is not a vessel. And that's what we are today. The Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the excellency of the power is, is of God and not of us. Amen. He just needs a vessel to fill. He needs someone who's ready, who's someone who's empty, someone who doesn't have a, has cleansed themselves and doesn't have anything in it. He just needs a vessel. We need to be that vessel today. And you know... When Jesus said that this is the problem, he said the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. He didn't say that, okay, we need to go and pray for the lost. I tried to find this, and I'm not trying to be controversial today. I tried to find this in the Bible. Did Jesus ever tell us we need to pray for the lost? And I can't find it in there. You let me know if you find it. I'm not saying it's not in the Bible. Uh, But he said this. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. He said that's the prayer that we need to pray today. And it's his harvest because it's his word that is sown. And God said to Isaiah, he said this, he said, My word will not return to me void or empty, but it's going to accomplish that which I please, and it's going to succeed. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. I want to tell you, he is the God of the seed, and he is the God of the soil. It is his word that is sown, and we are his people, we are his soil. The psalmist said, The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof, the people and they that dwell therein. And this is a dangerous prayer to pray. When you pray to the Lord of the harvest, according to the will of God, you're going to see an answer to God's yes, prayer. Sir. You're going to see an, you're going to see him answer that prayer. Yes, sir. 
And it might just be that you are sent to do his will. So be careful when you start praying this. Be ready when you start praying this. But I want to show you, I want to show you the, the sending church. I want to point out just a few things about this sending church. And the first thing you see, it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. See, the sending church is a seeking church. They were ministering to the Lord. And we will not ever hear the voice of God if we don't know how to seek after him. We have to learn how to seek after God. We have to learn how to hear his voice. We're never going to know what the will of God is for this generation if we don't learn how to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to his church. But the church of Antioch, we see that's what they were doing. They were a seeking church. And they were doing two things. They were worshiping. They were ministering to God. They were fasting. They were worshiping and they were fasting. As they ministered to the Lord, this is worship. And I want to tell you that worship is the most important thing that you can do. Um, And I I want to show you why. The disciples asked Jesus one day, they said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the first part of prayer is worship. It's saying, hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy, God. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to worship you. The thing about worship, why, why is it so important that we do that? Worship changes you. It changes your value system. Because what worship is, worship is an expression of what is ultimately valuable. True worship is an expression of awe and reverence. And you're saying, God, you are the one that's ultimately valuable. And the truth is that everyone on this planet, everyone worships something. Whether you're saved or you're unsaved, it doesn't matter. It's not, worship is not a religious thing because the thing is God created man and woman to worship. So regardless of what you believe, you're going to worship because that's what God created you to do. It's the, what is the object of our worship? That is the, that is the important thing. We see people worshiping all the time, but what are they worshiping? The object of their worship is what they value above everything else in their life. It could be a football team. It could be a rock band. And the thing is, you know, people, people value different things at different points in time. It's not just there's this one thing their life is all consumed about. Um, but you see this. They have different objects of worship. They have different venues of worship. People elevate these things above God and above everything else in their life. And they make them idols, and as a result, they suffer when that thing that they hold to be most valuable is taken away from them. And, you know, I've, you've seen this. Um, I can't remember what football team it is. I think it's the Raiders. They lost a football game, and the whole city just rioted. And they, they flipped over cars. They burned things. They looted the place. And you're, I'm, you're like, my God, that is insane. Like, what, what is wrong with these people? But it's because the thing that they held to be ultimately valuable just lost. It was just defeated. And as a result, there was an intense emotional reaction to that, right? Because that's what happens when you, when you worship an idol. That's what happens. When the band sings a sad song, it makes people sad. When your friend or your lover rejects you, you become de- depressed and despondent, you know, because you have set your affections on the things of the earth. And you understand this, but let me, let me show you why worship is so important. God is telling us, if you want to perceive the way that I do, we have to worship. You have to align your value system with God's. What you, what you value, see, worship, like I said, is, a, is an expression of what is ultimately valuable. And what you value will determine what you see. What you value will determine what you see. How many of you have done this? You've bought a new car because you, you valued that car. You're like, hey, that's the car I want. I'm going to get that, get that car, that make, that model, that color. And you buy it, and then all of a sudden you see everybody else who's driving that same car. You're like, hey, that, there's another green Ford F-150 right there. 
Or, or maybe, I mean, it's the same thing with a, with a shirt or, you know, some clothing. You see someone wearing that same thing, that same outfit that you bought, and you're like, whoa, you didn't notice it before. But now that you have it, it's like, hey, that appears, because it's what you value determines what you see. So your value system is going to determine what you see, and we cannot seek after anything that we can't set our eyes upon or visualize. We, we're not going to seek after it. And that's how we miss the mark. That's how we sin, because we don't have the right aim. Jesus said, hallowed be thy name. Worship is the first part of prayer. We cannot rightfully pray the second part. We can't enter into the purpose of God and say, thy will be done without having the values that God values. We have to be able to perceive things. We have to align our value system with God. God, you are what is ultimately valuable. Lord, there is none wiser than you. There is no one greater than you. Your name is holy. Your name is worthy. Thank you for the name of Jesus that you've given us. Amen. God, you are the only one worthy of honor. See, God's purpose is this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, make it so on earth just as it is in heaven. And when you pray the will of God, you're manifesting on earth what has already been accomplished in heaven. That's why it's so important that we be able to perceive like God. Because you can't just manifest anything with your prayer. You can't just, see, prayer is not magic. It's not you get three wishes, you know. It's not whatever you ask. It's it's you have to have you have to have the vision of what's already in heaven, and then you have to pray, God, I need that. I know that you have it for me. I know that you want to give it to me, and you have to pray that down. We have to manifest the things of God on this earth. The psalmist says this. He says, "Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven." And look at what Jesus says. Jesus said this in John five nineteen. He answered, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever, the, whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is saying, I, I didn't come to earth just to kind of do whatever I'm thinking about at the time. You know, Jesus came and he's like, whatever I see the Father do, that's what I do. And that's why Jesus was so powerful. That's why the miracles happen. See, there's no sickness in heaven. That's why Jesus was able to heal the sick. There's no death in heaven. That's why Jesus was able to raise Lazarus from the dead. There's no sin in heaven. So Jesus remained without sin. There are no liars and deceivers in heaven. So no deceit was found in his mouth. And he said this to his disciples. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me from heaven, I have demonstrated that same love to you. Everything miraculous that Jesus did on earth was because he was able to look in the heavenly realm and see what God had already accomplished from the foundation of the earth before time began. Jesus, uh, John says, in the beginning was the word. That's, the, that's past tense. He's saying, when time began, the word was already there. And I want to tell you something remarkable. Eternal things do not change. If God is going to answer your prayer at all, he has already answered it in heaven. First Corinthians says, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that love him. See, God has already prepared things in heaven for you, the things he wants you to have today. But the problem is we can't see or hear or understand them. But I'm so thankful for verse 10 that says, God hath revealed them to us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, even the deep things of God. I want you to understand that if your prayer is according to the will of God, then it is already answered in heaven. 
we must have a relationship with that Holy Spirit to understand the things that he wants to do through us, the things that he wants to give us. It's through prayer that we're able to manifest on earth what is already in heaven. Amen. And we have to be that sending church. We have to be that church that's able to hear the voice of God. But I want to tell you the one thing. Your pastor ministered to me this morning when he talked about prayer. Prayer is so important. Prayer is the foundation. But we see that this church in Antioch was doing another thing. They were fasting as well. I want to, I want to tell you why they were fasting. The thing, the thing about it is the one thing that's going to prevent you from praying is carnality. Carnality will sabotage your prayer. James said this. James says the reason why you pray and you don't receive what you're asking for is because you're asking for things just to satisfy your carnal desire, just to satisfy your flesh. The reason why carnality will sabotage your prayers is because Jesus taught us the one thing that's required in praying is importunity, that is persistence. There's no scripture in the Bible that says you pray for something one time and God is just going to answer it. No, he says you have to pray for it, and then you have to go back and pray for it again, and then you have to go back and pray for it again. No prayer, no, no scripture in the Bible says, hey, God's going to just immediately answer your prayer. But the thing is about carnality, we want our flesh wants immediate gratification. It wants, to, it wants the answer immediately. It wants to be entertained immediately. Carnality is the reason why there are drive through restaurants, right? You know... McDonald's, they don't make a good hamburger, but it's everywhere, right? The reason why McDonald's is a successful restaurant is because of the drive-thru. It's not the hamburger. It's like, we're going to give you a hamburger when you want it. You're not going to have to go into a restaurant and be seated by a waitress and sit down and, you know, wait 15 minutes for a hamburger. It's like, you're going to come in the drive-thru and we're going to hand a hamburger out the window. That's, that's carnal. Now, that's not a sin. It's not a sin to go through the drive-thru, right? But it's carnal, isn't it? It's carnal to go through the drive-thru because that's, you want immediate gratification. The thing is, carnality is unwilling to wait. And as that affects our prayer, it, carnality is thinking, God, I want you to do this for me. But in your, in your mind, your carnal nature is thinking of a plan B. It's thinking, what am I going to do if God doesn't answer this prayer, right? You're thinking about, hey, what am I going to do when God doesn't come through? Because I'm going to have to do something to satisfy my desire. So carnality doesn't want to accept when the answer is no. Carnality gets angry at God when it doesn't see the answer. It gets distracted easily by all the other things in life. Anything that is more comfortable, more convenient, more entertaining, more stimulating. So the carnality is the reason why we aren't praying in the first place. Prayer with carnality is unlikely to make a difference because it's not prayer with persistence, patience, and hope. And we don't like to do things that are pointless, do we? I don't like to do things that are pointless. If I'm doing something and it's not producing a result, I'm not going to do it. So it's only natural that we don't pray if we're carnal. That's why we have to fast. I want to tell you, that's why we have to fast. Fasting does not connect you to God. Prayer does that. Prayer connects you to God. See, we do this thing nowadays when we fast. We fast for something. We say, I'm fasting for a situation on my job, or I'm fasting for healing, or, or I'm fasting for a spiritual breakthrough. And that's fine. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I want you to understand what fasting is truly for. Um, because some people think that fasting will make you a better person. 
But in fact, it will make you a temporarily worse person. You are going to be grumpy. You are going to be complaining. You are going to be hungry. But So fasting doesn't earn you points with God. I want to tell you fasting is not penitence for your sins. Fasting is not some kind of payment system so that God will answer your prayer. But it does one thing. Fasting only does one thing. It disconnects you from this earth. Because if you stop eating, you will die eventually. Eventually. Not all at once. You're going to slowly become weaker and weaker and weaker. And as, as your body becomes weaker, that carnal nature becomes weaker too. And that spiritual nature can actually ex- express itself. And then we can pray like we're supposed to pray. We can pray with faith and expectation, with persistence and determination, not giving up when we have a little setback, not giving up when the answer is not immediate. We'll be able to pray in the Spirit, and most importantly, you'll be able to hear the Spirit. Pastor said you have to stop, right? You have to stop and you have to listen to what God is saying. That's why we need to fast. That's why we need to fast. See, fasting does one thing. It enables prayer. But let me tell you, prayer does everything. Prayer is so important. Prayer does everything else. Prayer can accomplish the impossible. And the sending church, the church that God wants this to be, God wants this to be a seeking church. We have to learn how to seek after him. And that means we have to fast. We have to pray. We have to be able to get in touch with God. We have to pray prayers that are effective, that are actually effective. At You know, we got to pray prayers that are getting answered. So, you know, pastor said, he asked you, you know, do you have a time and a place of prayer? That's good. That's good. You need to ask yourself that. Do you have a time and place of prayer? But are you praying like you should pray? Are your prayers getting answered? Those are other questions you need to add to that list because we want to pray prayers that are effective. We want to pray prayers that God is answering in Jesus' name. The sending church is a church that knows how to pray because we can't send people if we don't hear what the Holy Spirit's saying because it's the Holy Spirit that does the sending. Amen. The sending church is an equipping church. We see that the Holy Spirit says, separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit said, I have called them in the past, past tense. God called them to do a work in the past. I want to talk about that time between the calling and the sending. We call this time waiting, but God calls it equipping. So first you are called, but then you are equipped and then you are sent. God doesn't, he does it in that order. He doesn't get it out of order. He's not going to call you to do something that he's not going to equip you for. Right? He's not going to send you to do something without first preparing you. God does not send people that are not equipped. You know, the Bible says many are called, but few are chosen. And that doesn't make the calling of God cheap. You know? and that doesn't make the calling of God cheap at all. It's a high calling. It's a precious calling. But God is not going to first send you without first equipping you. The reason why few are chosen is because they just don't wait. They don't submit to the equipping process of God. They get discouraged. You know, when I, when I first understood that God had called me, I had just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was 18 years old, and I was on a mountain, both spiritually and physically. I was physically on a mountain. I received the Holy Ghost in the missions field in Guatemala, in this mountainous country. Literally, it was this mountainous country. And it was this Indian church. It was the most obscure, it was the most awkward service I'd ever been in because it was interpreted in three languages. The the English speaker was speaking English. It was getting interpreted into Spanish. And then it was getting interpreted again a third time into their language. 
which I don't even know what it was called. Um, a language I've never even heard of. Not a whole lot of people speak it. And everyone there was a foot shorter than me. I'm not a tall man. In fact, I'm, I'm on the shorter end of things. I'm on the shorter end of the spectrum. And everybody in that, in that village was a, foot, a solid foot shorter than me. But, you know, that was one of the first times that I recognized yeah. the love of God is yeah. universal. Yeah. Is universal. You don't have to have a church building like this right. for God to move. Right. You don't have to have things that we think are just given. Exactly but right. God, God will move in any situation. And I was impacted by that. And the man of God came and laid his hands upon me. And I spoke, began to speak in other tongues. And I want to tell you, I was so full of zeal, so full of excitement and passion. And I said, this is it. This is God's kingdom. I have entered in. Now what? Now what do I do? And I, I, I was so sure that soon, very soon, like next week, next Wednesday, by next Wednesday, there's going to be a door open for me to go onto the missions field and be a missionary. And God is just going to lead me to like higher and higher places. And, you know, it's going to be wonderful. And I was so disappointed when days passed and and weeks passed and months passed. And nothing happened. Became a disillusion. I became a little bit bitter. And the reason why, though, is because I confused the calling with the sending. I said, hey, there's a calling. I'm called. And I confused that with the sending. I didn't know about that there was a purpose in between that because I had never read the Bible. (laughs) I had never read the Bible for myself. I I didn't know how to pray. You know, and God is not going to send somebody who doesn't know how to pray. God is not going to send somebody who doesn't know how to study the word of God. Paul was called by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he told Ananias, a man, he said, go pray for this Paul. Ananias is like, God, are you sure about this guy? Do you know who this guy is? And God said, it doesn't matter. Go, for he is a chosen vessel. God said, I chose this guy, and I'm going to show him all the things that he is going to have to suffer for my namesake. In other words, God's saying, look, he has a long way to go before I use him. But when I do use him, he's going to make the biggest impact ever. You know, God chose you before you knew him. I want you to know that. When God called you, that wasn't the first time God started thinking about you. He chose you way before you even knew him. And God has a work appointed for you to do. You are to be a vessel for his glory. And he is able to complete that work. I'm telling you, God is not done working in you. No matter what stage of life you are in, no matter how old you are, God is not done working. His work is still ongoing. And he is able to finish the work that he started in you. But we have to be able to submit to his process of equipping. God said to Ananias, I'm going to show Paul how much he has to suffer for my sake. And God is saying, Paul, you are called, but there is a process. There is an equipping. There is a time of preparation. And the Bible said he preached Christ in the synagogue because no doubt he was full of zeal. He was like, hey, I had it all wrong, guys. But then what happened? Then nothing. Then he went back, you know, to Tarsus. He spent Years in the, in the De- Arabian desert, and then in his home in Tarsus, he waited, seemingly doing nothing. He was waiting, but I want to tell you that God is in the waiting. There is a process. God is in the waiting. We need to submit to God's process of waiting because God is working while we are waiting. Because those that are submitted to God's process of waiting are going to be equipped for what he wants them to do in the world. And Isaiah declares this. He's, he says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Now, eagles' wings are not an ordinary human trait. They are extraordinary. They are not natural. They are spiritual. They are supernatural, in other words. Before we can step into the realm of the supernatural, there has to be a time of waiting. Before we can mount up with wings as eagles, before we can step into that realm of the supernatural, God working through us to do his will, there has to be a time of waiting. Before David killed Goliath, he waited. He kept sheep in a pasture. He defended them from wild animals. He did the mundane work. He learned to deal with loneliness. He learned to love his creator. He learned to be a worshiper. And while he was doing the daily work, while he was delivering food to his brothers in the army, he looked over and he saw the champion of Gath defying the armies of Israel. And when he confronted Goliath, this is what he said. He said, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He said, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. How was David able to say that so confidently? Testosterone, right? Male overconfidence. Typical male overconfidence. No. You have to be equipped before you are sent. You have to be equipped with a relationship with your heavenly father. You have to gain a new perspective on this life. And a relationship, let me tell you, a relationship requires history. You have to have a history with God. You have to know him. You have to know what his will is. And it's not a one-night stand. It's not developed in one night. It's not developed in a seven-night revival either. The most frustrating thing about God, uh, the most frustrating thing about God is that he is in no hurry. Did you know that God has all the time in the world? Literally? Like, literally, he has all the time in the world. You know, before Moses parted the Red Sea and led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity, you know, he, he, was on the, he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert watching sheep. And this was after he turned 40. After he turned 40, you know, you think people in their 40s, they go through this midlife crisis, they buy a big truck, you know, they jack it all up, you know, I don't know. (laughs) After he turned 40, midlife crisis, you know, you're like, oh, I got to do something. And, you know, he had to wait for 40 more years. He spent 40 years learning to care for a dumb animal, learning humility, learning to care for some sheep who are no doubt wayward and stubborn. I bet God, God must have made sure Moses had the worst sheep. Because God could not use a zealous man who was quick, so quick to murder an Egyptian and act like he was doing the will of God. See, the thing is, God was forming Moses to be a man who would not just quit and go home after the miraculous deliverance was over. Who time and time again, Moses would intercede for a rebellious and sinful people when the wrath of God would have consumed them in a moment. You see, Moses and David, they're like, they have these hero stories. Moses parts the Red Sea. David kills Goliath. But what happens after the miracles? It's what happens after the miracles that God needs to prepare you for. It's the waiting. God said, I can no longer abide these Israelites, these stiff-necked people. Moses, come and let me destroy them. Let me destroy these people, and I will make a nation out of you, greater and mightier than they are. God's saying, hey, Moses, let's, let's just start over. I have all the time in the world, Moses. Literally, I have all the time in the world. Wait, you know, I, I can start over right now. 
But God knew who Moses was. No, God says, let me show you what a hero looks like. A hero is someone who does not just part the Red Sea, but can stick with a wayward people, who can shepherd them through years of rebellion and through the 40 years of God's rejection. The thing is, Moses had to know what 40 years of rejection felt like so that he could shepherd God's people and intercede for them and, not, and hold back the wrath of God. After David killed Goliath, he lived a life of a fugitive, running from his father-in-law, the king, running and hiding in caves with criminals. See, God is equipping you for what happens after the miraculous. I'm telling you that God is going to equip you to do more than teach a Bible study. God is going to equip you to be an intercessor. God is going to equip you to sympathize with the hurting and the wayward. And more importantly, God is going to show you how to show mercy to someone who does not deserve it. He's going to equip you to hold back the just wrath of God on someone who does deserve it. That's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be the salt of the earth, the thing that preserves this earth. We have to be, God wants to equip you into someone who says, God, just give this person one more chance to repent. Give them one more chance to make it right. Give them one more chance to step into their true purpose. The sending church has to be an equipping church. We have to equip one another. We have to equip those that God is going to be sent. And we have to submit to God's process of equipping. See, Barnabas went and he found Saul. He found Saul in Tarsus and brought him back and said, Saul, you need to come to Antioch. You need to come see what God is doing. And it was a church that was able to equip them for their sending. The sending church is a gifted church. This is my last point. Folks, this is a three-point sermon. So I'm almost done. We're wrapping this up soon. The author of my text points out that many talented and well-known individuals were in this church. This tells me that church was a, this was a gifted church. See, God's process of equipping is not just about spending those lonely years in the desert hearing the voice of God directly, but the way that we learn today is through relationships. We need other people to demonstrate Christ to us, to show us how the word of God is lived out. We need to see the application of scripture. That's the most important part of scripture. Uh, James says, be hearers of the word and not doers only, deceiving yourselves. We have to know how, how is this scripture lived out? How is it applied? How do I do it? And we need to do the same for others. We need to be that example to other people. And this is why Jesus Christ created the church. And I want you to know that the kingdom of God is about people. And it's about relationships with those people. You cannot be... I want to tell you, you cannot be in a right relationship with God and be all bent up about somebody else in the church. You can't be all bent up. Jesus said this. Jesus said, if you know that your brother has something against you, it's not even that you have something against them. It's like you know that you said somebody something that offended them, and you're thinking in your head, well, they just need to get over it. No, Jesus said, this is what you need to do. He, he said, leave your gift at the altar. Don't, don't come and worship me, but go make it right with your brother first. You can't be all bent up about people and then come and expect to have a right relationship with your heavenly father. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7 and 11 and 12 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. 
But then it says in verse 7, but to each one of us, each one of us, that means every one of us. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To everyone, there was a measure of grace given. Every one of you in here today, if you have been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, you have a measure of Christ's gift. You have a measure of grace. And verse 11 says he gave some, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So only some of those are apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers. And let me tell you, everyone in this church should be ministering, should be ministry. You know, when you say ministry, we think, okay, the, the, the pastors, the prophets, the teachers, that's what you think of. But their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's the saints that do the ministry of God. And let me tell you something God showed me one time. I, I wasn't, I was praying and I was fasting and I was reading my Bible and I was doing everything I knew how to do because I just had a desire to just get to that next level with God. I wanted to just like step up and just, God, I want you to bring me to that next level. And I was just pouring my heart out in prayer and it was a time of fasting. The church was fasting. Um, we fast at the beginning of the year. And it was during this time I was praying and man, I was just hitting the wall. I wasn't getting any closer to God. It was frustrating. I'm like, what is, the, what is going on, God? Why can't I just make progress? And God just showed this to me. He showed me something. He's like, Jared, you're never going to, you're never going to get higher than the church. You're, you're not going to be this one person that just rises above the level of your church. If the church is carnal, you're going to be carnal. If the church doesn't know how to pray, your prayers are going to be hindered. If you are connected to the body, you cannot operate in isolation. God is not going to elevate one part of the body so far above the others. But the, the whole church, God showed me that the whole church has to move up together. And that's what made me understand that I had to be part of the ministry, that I had to minister to the church. And that was the path. That was the path forward. Because we, have to, we all have to pull together. We all have to realize that we're connected to one another. And it's through our connection to one another that we can all go higher, that we can all connect to God in Jesus' name. God didn't call you to do it all by yourself. He has given each one of us a measure of grace, and it's only when we work together that our efforts amount to what God wants them to be. The measure of Christ's gift, that's the Holy Ghost in you. And there is work required to uncover your gifting. God doesn't have these cookie-cutter molds for people in the church. He doesn't have apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Oh, I ran out of cookie-cutters. That's all I got. No. But the psalmist said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And I want to tell you that there is something marvelous in you that God wants you to do in the church, with the church. There is something marvelous. God, how God created you reveals what he wants to do through you. But it might not be obvious. And we have to do the work to uncover what God wants to do through us. And I, you, can, you can stand with me as I close. But I, I want to tell you that the apostolic church is ascending church. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was sent for a purpose. And he sent us into the world. He said, this is what he said. He said, go into all the world. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. 
And, but Paul asked the Romans this. He says, how, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? See, there has to be someone doing the sending. And it's the Holy Ghost that does the sending. But it's the church. It's the church that equips us, that prepares us, that grows you so that you can be sent to make a difference. It takes a church. And this is the purpose of God's church. And I want to tell you, if you need God to move in your life today, no matter what it is, if you need God to move in your life today, you need to step into his purpose because God's power is for his purpose. The power of God is for the purpose of God. When we see miracles happen, those miracles are there to further the purposes of God. And if you need something radical done in your life today, then we need to radically commit to God's purpose. And I'm preaching you, to you today because I believe one of the greatest needs that we have in the church today in this dispensation of God's grace is for the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. Somebody needs to hear the call of God today and have a heart like Isaiah when he said, here am I, send me. Someone needs to step up and recognize what God is trying to do with your life. Jesus is calling you to step into a purpose. And I feel like someone here today needs to move from calling to equipping. Needs to submit to God's process of equipping. Would you come up here and help me pray today? That God, Lord, pray to the Lord of the harvest. That he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Can we pray today? God, I thank you so much for your power. I thank you so much for your purpose. God, I thank you, Lord, because you have called us to a This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.